sit in that chair and we're going to spend the whole Saturday recording this podcast and thinking about what we've done. Little does he know, I have a phone. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Ribbon of Memes, episode 23. I am Nick and I am joined as ever by the rebellious Roger. You can't make me. <laughs> and this is a podcast where we interrogate films previously described by other naughty children as masterpieces. Today we are uh, cranking out the 80s tunes, putting on our shoulder pads and fingerless gloves, and taking a trip to the library in John Hughes' 1985 The Breakfast Club. Um, it is a, it's a first time for me, The Breakfast Club. Yeah. Uh, I lived through the 80s, um, and I, I I saw a lot of John Hughes films. I was a teenager when this film came out, though not an American teenager, which I think might have made a difference. Well, I think we'll come on to that. But yes, I there was... Well, I spoke the quick summary of The Breakfast Club, for those who don't know, and it will be a quick summary, I guess, is that um, five... Is it five kids? Five naughty kids are given detention on a Saturday, which apparently was quite a normal thing to do in American schools, or certainly not unheard of. Um, they are there for the whole day. Um, the teacher, after a while, seems to forget they're there, and they they bond and discover they that even teenagers have feelings and angst too. Even people who aren't them even can do, can do a really good imitation of human beings. <laughs> There we go. That's uh, that's it. Uh, this is. I was surprised. So the Breakfast Club, I we can say up front. I think cast quite a long shadow in that it was certainly talked about a lot, and it was considered quite quickly. I feel um, <clears throat> I don't know about a masterpiece, but something that a lot of uh, maybe I was just a bit. You know, I was nine in 1985. I'm not sure when it came out in the UK. Mm. But I would have been nine or ten, presuming it took a year to make it across to our shores. Um, but John Which Hughes, films did in those days? Uh, yeah, they did. Remember <laughs> that, when it, it took a long time to make it across the Atlantic. Um, I guess that was before people could get impatient and just download the film themselves for free. Um, uh, 7th of June, 85, in the UK. It was released in February in the States. Oh, so I would have been eight when it came out. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I, remember, I was an actual teenager. You're an actual teenager. Um, uh, well, that's interesting because I remember. Well, I don't remember. I I did watch this film uh, yesterday, and I remember thinking at one point, "Well, I suppose it's not really aimed at me. It's aimed at someone who was young in the '80s." And then I remembered, "Oh, that was me." <laughs> so, and yeah, I'm I'm probably closer to the target age than than you would have been, uh, but I did have a very similar feeling that this clearly had a lot to say to alienated. 80s teenagers mm. but I wasn't quite that sort but yeah I think we'll come back to that shall we talk more about the, fil the film first and then uh, come on to our reactions to uh, it our reaction to it okay so this is I mean these kids John Hughes just a bit of background on John Hughes I mean he had done I think 12 candles before this 16 candles much. 16 candles, yes, 12 16 candles would have been a very disturbing film now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, he'd done 16 candles before this and done some writing, perhaps. John Hughes was a... When I was growing up, everyone knew about John Hughes' co comedies. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And there was a slight, at least in the circles I moved in, there was a slight snootiness about them in that they were not... They were good, but they weren't great. 
Mm. It's the it's the honest opinion of, of of kind of the people I moved. That said, some of them, I mean, for me, he genuinely did some films that I absolutely. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I think, is and probably remains a classic. May have dated better than The Breakfast Club. I was not never a huge fan of it, but possibly I did again. I didn't see it in the right frame of mind. Yeah, I suppose I did see it as a kid and enjoyed it. But I, I mean, the film that I love from John Hughes is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, mm-hmm. um, which I just genuinely. Very, I mean, John Candy became something of a muse to him uh, after Molly Ringwald was a muse to him, mm-hmm. uh, and then he, uh, then I remember him doing Home Alone, which he then... didn't didn't direct, but it may well. It's I suspect if there's any justice, it's the film that made him most money. Uh, I think it's, it did. it's certainly the film that made most money. Uh, I, I definitely made him the most, I, or I'm pretty sure it made him the most money. Then he, uh, well, he became a something of a recluse and sadly had a heart attack uh, about 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, he did because... write quite a bit more. Uh... Right, but he didn't enjoy the media spotlight. Yeah. Um, well, there we go. Um, and The Breakfast Club is one of his earliest and one that passed me by at the time. But these, um, we have these five... I'm going to call them stereotypes, and in some ways that's the point of the film, that they're supposed to be stereotypes, and then we have the closing narration that kind of punctures that a bit. I'm not sure, honestly, aside from the closing narration, it does puncture them. I mean, it seems to suggest that it does, and that, but I never felt that it particularly did. It well, just the, gave them another dimension. Yeah, I mean, they are all coming from you know, being the sporty one, the delinquent mm-hmm. one, uh, the school princess... The weirdo and the nerd, yeah. Yeah. And Yes. Yeah, all right, we we do. But I I think the point is not so much that they all have aspects of the others as that we learn that each of them has more to them than the stereotype. Maybe they don't like being in that stereotype, but it's the, the, the accommodation they've got to to survive the tension between home life and school life, perhaps, something of that sort. Yeah, I I think, I guess, the summary of it or what the the epiphany they come to, such that it is, is that they all they all think the others are happier in their role than they are in theirs in mm-hmm. some way. But it turns out every one of them is either forced into their role or not happy with it. Yeah, or... I mean, it, it it is as I was joking earlier. Basically, teenage solipsism. Each of them is thinking, "I am immediately unhappy and, and misunderstood in this world." Yeah, as exactly. Teenagers generally do think. As, as they do. And the shock comes that, you know, turns out other teenagers feel like that too. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. That's not, um, I don't know that that was a particularly glib point, but I mean, the concept of the teenager was still only kind of 30 years old by that point. You know, it didn't exist before World War Two, as far as I'm aware, and really came about in the 50s. Mm. But a lot of those, you know, a lot of those films were very rebellious um, films. But the 80s rebellion has it, a different it, nature to it and a different feel to it from 50s rebellion. Yeah, I think, well, 50s rebellion is... Basically, the, the, just ahead of the baby boomers. Yes. And 80s Rebellion is just after. Uh, well, intro, you know, the, the, the baby boomers were the generation that kind of mobilised and protested and did things. Um, I, and I, and, I mean, and then I'm went to saying... Jet and had kids. Exactly. No, I'm not saying that's the actual truth. Because I, but, I, but in know, their minds, or, that's the way. It's to a sure. first approximation, that's the 60s, 70s kids. Um, 
you know, we had, I was going to say Wartstock then, but I mean Woodstock. <laughs> um, and all, the, you know, the flowers in the end of Guns and Nixon, and they had something to rebel about. Um, and the 80s kids uh, kind of had a, ostensibly, a perfect life. They lived in peace, they lived in plenty, they lived in this time of, uh, of unprecedented peace if you ignore a large portions of what was happening around us. All, all, <laughs> all you have to worry about is nuclear annihilation. Well, yeah, that did cast something of a shadow over it. <laughs> but they were still unhappy and sad, and so it has a different kind of angst and anxiety to it. Um, yeah, and I, I think uh, the film was one of the first, I believe, in writing teenagers like actual humans. Or at least approximations of them. Yeah. Looking at the context, I think if you had said, you know, teenage comedy before this and Sixteen Candles, people would, would have been thinking of your animal house and your porkies, basically. Porkies. Basically, yes, that. Which I have no intention of rewatching. <laughs> I've never actually... I've seen bits of Animal House. I've seen bits of porkies. I just didn't, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I, th- those characters really are just the one-word stereotype descriptions. I was wondering whether this might be a generational thing, but Hughes was born in 1950, which is the same year as John Landis, who directed Animal House. So it's not as yeah, simple as so that. It's not... No, but John John Hughes clearly felt teenagers had been done a disservice by those kind of films. Mm. Because this isn't... It's certainly not what you were caught... Because these films... Well, it's certainly not a gross-out comedy that we get nowadays. You know, there's not really any kind of, uh, apart from the, <laughs> apart from the Me Too kind of, uh, unpleasant, um, images that it shows looking back from a 2021 perspective. Um, but it's not a gross-out. In fact, I, the thing that surprised me about The Breakfast Club, having seen a lot of other John Hughes films, was that this is a stage play, more or less. You know, mm. it's a, pretty much a single location. It would not take a lot of work to adapt it for the stage. No, and it's very talky um, and uh, quite thoughtful and not uh, not especially funny. It's more of a drama than a mm. comedy. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are comedic elements to it, but I don't think it builds itself as a comedy. I, I sort of assumed it was going into it, uh, but that's not the film's fault that I thought it was. Um, yeah, I was surprised at how stagey it was and, and really... Uh, I, I watched the advert actually before I watched the film, and then I realised, oh no, it's literally just this day in detention. Um, but yes, it was. Um, I, I was surprised. Yeah, it's, at it's, that. it's not the Ferris Bueller where he's getting out and doing all sorts of things. No, uh, or getting into trouble with the boy. It, it was just, um, it was just these kids stuck together. And I guess the point of the dramatic structure is to eventually break down the walls they have between themselves to come to this epiphany at the end of the film. Um, yeah, though, I mean, possibly because, A, a because it's not a particularly long film, but yeah. also B, because there aren't really uh, act divisions because it is all happening in the same location. No. It felt as though the breaking down of walls was happening awfully fast. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, it almost, there are, I mean, as you could say with any film at all, but it, it plays in real time for considerable moments and then you have probably a couple of montages which you mm-hmm. might you might be able to say oh well this is the end of part one it's the end of part two it, it's not quite you as you say as delineated as that but it there's a passage of time and then things are a little different afterwards um the principal 
he's not the principal, but the teacher just kind of disappears halfway through the film and sits in the basement with the janitor. Yeah, um, and that's... Yeah. All right, I'm an old person. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's obviously... You feel they were, he was done a disservice. Well, he's obviously meant to be unsympathetic, and eventually yeah. we get to the point that, yes, he is blatantly villainous. He He is looking yeah. at these confidential files... For whatever nefarious purpose, He's and, th- and then nothing, nothing really comes of that. And I wonder whether there was there were elements cut from the script that would have made more sense of it. But anyway, yeah, he's he's got this completely impossible job to do. Yeah, and he's got no tools to do it or idea of how to do it. Mm. But he's going to get blamed when the delinquent is still a delinquent. <laughs> I mean, he could, you know, he, he does. Um... On his watch during this day, there's drug use and um, uh, sexual, <laughs> sexual. Um, what one feels at the very least, he would have noticed the smell. You would have uh, thought, uh, so, after, given after the hot boxing in particular, how much they're toking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I agree. I mean, I guess from a forty-something-year-old's uh, perspective, I feel that character could have been made still have exactly the same role and still have the children, uh, the, the teens, the, the the protagonists, if you like behave towards him in exactly the same way mm. but could have just seen a bit of a more sympathetic he could have even had the scene with um uh with Bender um you know where he, he basically threatens him um but just humanized him a lot or at least shown him under pressure as well. that would have been interesting to show the adult under pressure too mm. but it's not interesting and as many of John Hughes teens films aren't that you know if you're over 25 then you're pretty much not it worth talking about and you could argue that's the point of the film that those those people have had their day and now we want to look at the teens and he's he's not really there as a character but then i asked myself why do we have this slightly weird scene with him with the janitor in the basement was that it felt like that was an attempt to humanize him or at least explain him without yeah and and really Carl succeeding is... So, sort of a holy fool, you know, the the yeah. innocent who who just says the truth thing. So I mean, mm. at, least, at least he's not black. Uh, <laughs> but hey, yeah. no, nobody is. This is middle America. Nobody is in this film or in many of them. They're not uh, the most diverse. Of films. But with with that in mind, I, I think there was either too much or too little of that. Yeah, I agree. It should yeah. have either I, either not have it at all or build it into something that says, yeah, this is this is what. This is, this is his side of it. And this yeah. is, this is why he's being such a horrible person because he, th- he thinks that that, that is the way to do it. And maybe mm. he will learn better by the end of it or, but he doesn't. I mean, he's just, he's it's just a, an obstruction. He's just an obstruction, in which case we don't need as much of it as we get. We just need a fairly quick explanation as to why he's not around for the rest of the film and didn't need what we got. Anyway. We'll dispense with him because the film does. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I did feel that in in, the, in what you might call the main plot, there, there was more of a this bit happens and then that bit happens more than that happens because this happens. There was yeah. some linkage, and that you know, obviously they are gradually opening up to each other and so on. But I didn't feel that. I don't know. It's not that you know A sees B say something and A is then. Uh, activated by that particular thing that's just in general over the course of the day they are, they seem to be. Yes, I agree. It, it, it didn't feel, <sighs> it didn't feel natural. Not that it felt unnatural, but it didn't feel, it just felt like this was inevitable, but it wasn't really well explained. It, it, I could, it was a little clumsy in how they got to this 
final circle of epiphanies. Um, I suppose for me as well, because it was a very stagey production, because I've seen a lot of stagey productions that really are incredibly good at ramping up the tension, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Twelve Angry Men, that, you know, Mm. lead to this huge moment of, you know, that floor you um, at points in it, more successfully in Twelve Angry Men. Um, But um, that never really happens here because, you know, the final revelations are, uh, well, actually, I got an F and that was pretty bad. So I wanted to kill myself, and that's like I, that's a, a shock, but it's not a surprise, I suppose. You know, you I, I think the, that... the moment that comes closest to that is a bit earlier, um, when uh, our, our, I mean, our man Bender is getting, getting oh, yeah. permanent detention forever. Yes, and you know, yeah, yeah, he, and he's basically saying, "Yeah, you you can give me as many detentions as you like, and I just don't care. This is not a deterrent to me." Now, yeah. what are you going to do? Yes, that was a nice moment it doesn't really i don't know it didn't really quite develop that into a moment of high drama though because it comes to a point where he's just like i don't care and then the teacher just sort of gives up which could be a thing in itself i mean it could be the trigger of his i'm gonna have to do something differently because this isn't this isn't working it could be but it isn't (laughs) it doesn't really it doesn't feel like well let's let's not blame the film for being the thing it isn't no, but I agree with you. It doesn't feel like the one led to the other so much as that happened and then this happened and then this happened. Uh, and it never quite reached the dramatic crescendo that I was expecting. But again, maybe this is because we are, from our perspective, we're used to treating younger people as characters too. Mm. And I think, bre- uh, and very nearly called it Breakfast at Tiffany's, but avoided it, at the <laughs> Breakfast Club, um, was one of the first films that did that and I I think it had a huge appeal to a lot of people who were feeling I'm a teen and I'm struggling this is hard work yeah and I think this was a film that explicitly said you know what this is the experience of being a teen it is hard work and it is difficult adolescence is is difficult Mm. I I'm going to admit, perhaps unique amongst the ranks of mankind, my adolescence wasn't that bad. I quite enjoyed, yeah. I had quite a nice childhood. I was very lucky. I remain one of the luckiest humans on the planet. I didn't hate my children and my, uh, my children, my parents. And <laughs> you don't hate your children me, either. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. There seems to be an existential dread in this and other films of this type. Diner as well, to an extent, that these, Kids are gonna turn into their parents. That is the worst fate imaginable. Um, and I, while I understand there's an experience of a lot of people, it was not my experience. I quite like my parents and I would have been quite happy to turn into them. In fact, probably have done. I so. didn't particularly want to turn into my parents, but I didn't and they didn't push me to. So, I mean, yeah, I, similarly, I, I had a reasonably good adolescence apart from the life-changing illness. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you had it, <laughs> you had it tougher than me. But again, I, I think, what I'm saying, and possibly you're agreeing with it, the film doesn't necessarily speak to me of what I was experiencing during that time. Yeah. There, there, that... there is an ethos which, I mean, obviously to some extent flows from films like this, but I think it became part of, part of the um, general currency of ideas in the late 80s that the reasonably prosperous suburban life was essentially soulless and rotten. Oh goodness, yeah, and that is all. The, uh, there's a lot of 80s films shot through with that idea, 
it's not it's the decade when we had the burbs where it basically shows you that hell on earth is the suburbs. Oh, it's mm-hmm. shot through with racism and xenophobia as well, that film does. <laughs> but never mind. Um, uh, yes, I, I, mean, I suppose that's... Th- this film just doesn't have anything to say about race. And while, while there are some implications of, of class or at least poverty, it doesn't really go into those much. So, yeah. No, I don't think it's trying to either. And it's hard to criticise an 80s film for not being very diverse. I mean, for an (laughs) 80s film, it actually had two female protagonists who are... Well, they were given as much humanity as the rest of the uh, Mm -hmm. cast. Though it might be a good time to touch on the problematic moment. There's there's the moment when um, Bender is under the table and clearly... There is some non-consensual stuff going on there uh, between um, Molly Ringwald's legs that is played for laughs. Um, yeah, really. well, I mean, he he is constantly sexually harassing her mm. you know, through the whole thing, and he is quite aggressively doing it as well. It's not, um, and yet, through with no apology for that behaviour, he wins her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can't help seeing this as positive reinforcement. I mean, he's been an asshole all along. He hasn't compromised his assholeness the way the others have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite right. And it's, um, I was interested, but yeah, I, I sent you the article that Molly Ringwald wrote about this um, yeah, just which a few I'll, years ago. I'll stick in the show notes. Yes, would be worth reading because she finds that very. She watched it through with her daughter, and she found it very uncomfortable watching. Um, though her daughter didn't, um, uh, 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 probably was too young to sort of pick up on the, the worries at the time, but her feeling, and I can't help but agree with her, is that, you know, culture and art informs the behaviour of people around you, and if that sort of behaviour is seen to be rewarded in a very influential film where people look cool doing it, that is probably part of the problem. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't need every film to be a moral lesson. No. But. <laughs> well, I, I think it doesn't feel judged or commented on it. And I think particularly the scene under the desk is kind of played for laughs. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's uncomfortable from a modern standpoint, uh, which is nice to say that it's uncomfortable now. I'd, I'd like to think I wouldn't have been happy about it at the time, but yeah, I can't say. I'm not, I'm not that guy it's, anymore. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, we were all, we were all different, maybe. <laughs> I was a lot smaller, uh, for one. Um, <laughs> that aside, that kind of meter, I do think in other ways, it's progressive or at least trying to be progressive, um, Still written from the perspective of a older white guy, mm-hmm. but at least trying to, you know, there's no diversity in there to speak of, but it was a mid eighties film. And I, I still think the fact we had two female protagonists who were given some, given some personality. Well, no, neither of them is just the chick. Exactly. Yeah. And yes, they are a bit shallow and vapid and angst-ridden, but then all the guys are too. Um, <laughs> I don't think they're given any less service. Except, goodness me, what is happening with Ali Sheedy at the end? I, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 Sheedy, I grew up liking the goth look, so I might, turning I, I, her I conventionally have, pretty is is a message of conformity that really doesn't fit well. It's exactly the same thing that happens in Greece. Like, and now I'm going to look like everyone else, and now I will be happy. It just, it was, I mean, I would have, yeah. uh, she was, 
I would have fancied her rotten in the Breakfast Club when she was <laughs> her mm. dark, mysterious goth character. Um, I and uh, anyway, again, that's objectification in some way. But I just feel that her transformation. Yeah, I mean, my, to... my my personal taste is obviously not relevant, but but I do feel that saying get, getting prettied up will get you the guy is is again yeah. not not good messaging. It, it, yeah, so it's I I feel like it's heart. I mean, every cosmetic company in the world is already trying to send you that message. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> we don't need uh, a cool film doing it too. Um, so those, I guess those problems with it aside, I mean, really the film is just trying to say, you know, if you're, I, to me, I feel like the whole message of the film, it's a fairly simple to read message is if you're struggling and you're a teenager, this is what it's like to be a teenager. So maybe you're not as alone as you think. And I think that mm. is a positive message for a film to give across. Sure. Um, it's just a bit clumsy about how it does it at times. Yes, I I do agree. But I I think I gather reading around this film helped a lot of people, um, even uh, people who weren't sort of um, represented in the film. Just knowing that there were other people of that age having mm. those problems, even if they were much much prettier than you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean there, there there is nobody uh, even hinted at being gay here, but I, but I have read stories accounts from gay people saying, yeah, you know. I could have this vicarious thing and I, I didn't have to risk, you know, being forced out. Yes. That kind of thing. I, it, just yeah, just I the think... idea that, yeah, that, that they are, they are out there. They are, they are people they are suffering too was, was a message I... that was useful for people to hear. Yeah. I suppose the implication of the film is if you're a teenager and you're finding it hard work, you're not alone. And mm. I think that, yeah, overall, that's a strong one. Uh, uh, should we talk about the performances here? They're principally mm, from mm. the, you know, our, our young or not so young <laughs> cast here. Um, but we have, and I haven't really seen Judd Nelson in many other things. He was one of the, was it the Brat Pack? Well, um, they, they were all count. Everybody in this world, well, all the young people in this were regarded were the as. Brat pack. Uh, the, I have seen St. Elmo's Fire, and I vaguely remember him from that, but he's quite different in that. I remember him being fairly preppy. Um, I haven't seen it for a long time. But he, here he is, the rebel, a very cool looking rebel, I must say. I'm not sure that's, um, quite, uh, quite how rebellious people generally dress, but I don't, um, for me, at least, and now he has a hard job because he is basically the antagonist who breaks the walls down. As far mm-hmm. as I can tell, that's the point of his character. Um, oh, I do feel like he just belts out his lines, <laughs> you know, and, and doesn't put a lot of nuance into them. Um, I I didn't get a lot of hidden depth necessarily from him. Maybe I'm being an, an ingenerous, and maybe there were moments where his vulnerability shone through. But I was so irritated by him as a character, <laughs> just one yeah. that I. I, I mean, I, I I knew people who played that sort of role. They didn't do mm. it to that extreme, obviously. But but you know, a, a, every yeah, always always claiming to be the bad boy. Um, yeah, and it just got old. <laughs> But, yeah. Yeah, and very quickly into that shtick, he's, uh, you know, he's telling them about his abusive parents and that, which felt, it didn't feel true to his character in some way that I, di- I didn't feel like that was a truth he would just reveal as easily as he does. Um, even though again, it's not a surprise. And so that felt a little forced, but as far as his performance goes, I, I, I felt it was a bit shouty. 
for want of a better term. That's why. Mm, I mean, the role is not one that demands a lot of subtlety, but he doesn't put it in there either, so... Yeah, I think that that's fair enough. Yes, he, he plays the character as written, I'm sure, but not a lot more than that. Um, we have Molly Ringwald as the the princess. Um, I, if you I, like. have, I haven't seen in a whole lot. Um, okay, I think I, she's in Saint Elmo's Fire as well, and a, a few other films. She, she's in Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Is she? Oh my god! I really want to watch that film again. I haven't seen that for years. <laughs> oh my god. She is. Now I can see her. Now you've said it. Oh my god. Um, but, but not, not really a whole lot else that I've seen. Um, she, I mean, I think she, um, did pretty well off the back of this. I mean, they all did. They all did very well and, and went into a lot of other films or either did they, that they, unconsciously. They, they may not all have become really huge names, but they, they certainly had, uh, decent, decent length filmographies. Well, they faded a lot. This is one of those diner films, isn't it? Where everyone in it ended up as a star except, Diner, uh, I seem to do better by its, by its cast than this did, and ultimately these stars faded more quickly, I feel. The other thing but, that often seems to happen is, is the re- people in relatively minor roles end up being spotted and becoming big stars, whereas the people in the big roles kind of are, are assumed to have burned out on this, so. Yes, yeah, that's true. Though I don't, I don't know if any, well, Amelia Estevez is the other. Uh, well, Molly Ringwald, um, how did you feel about her performance? Um, hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because she, she, I, I felt similarly actually that I hadn't seen her a lot else, so it was hard to know how different she was to other characters she played. And she's the, very the believable, believable, uh, but that includes an annoying edge. And if yeah. she's supposed to be the character we're sympathising with most, which would be a default for the pretty female character. Yes. Then that doesn't quite work. Now, that may just be my, my preconceptions. Um, I actually thought it worked quite well because of that. You know, she's not, this one is automatically the good one and the others are yeah. good insofar as they agree with her. There is nobody in that, in that role. Yeah, I quite like that, that there wasn't a, a standout. I mean, the standout character is the, the, the Larry Twat <laughs> of Judd Nelson, but he is, um, he's not, there isn't really a, this guy's that this this is the one that we should put ourselves in the position of. It was these are just five different people. Mm. So uh, as such, I thought it was interesting because nowadays, I don't know that stereotype has been slightly subverted by either intensely cruel girls or completely vapid girls like Valley Girl style characters, mm. or utterly malevolent creatures a la mean girls um and so she felt actually to me a bit more nuanced and a bit less full-blown prom queen than characters we've seen in other films which is nice partly because we never see um, i think this is true of all of them we we never see them in fully in their roles that's right they're never in their crowd are they so they're never quite relaxed in that way and I suppose the only one who is really in her crowd is Ali Sheedy's character, because um, she doesn't have one. Mm-hmm. And so just being on the edge of the crowd the whole time is just what she does. Um, yeah, so Molly Ringwald, I, I wasn't... Uh, I, I'm going to struggle with in a way because I think, similarly to you, I wasn't emotionally moved by the film in a way that I was sort of expecting to be. And it was through... no. I thought they were very earnest acting jobs. But Molly Ringwald's character didn't really <sighs> touch me or interest me, especially other than 
she had some nice moments in it, but also mm. I, I struggled with her character clearly being attracted to um, Bender. <laughs> Again, it's the, the the whole bad boy cliche, and yeah. I I know people who genuinely believe in that as a thing, and they are not good people. <laughs> yeah. And I feel, again, it might come back to the fact, you know, if you see that behaviour repeated on the screen, you might feel, oh, this is validating in some way for how I'm... I don't know. But it it, it didn't feel like a healthy thing. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't blown away by Molly Ringwald in the way that, for instance, you know, we had... Um, we were just talking about Dance with a Stranger um, and um, Miranda Richardson's performance. I think we were both thought was amazing mm. and I, I i don't know i don't know what they could have done here to make their performances amazing but yeah it was okay uh-huh. <laughs> so uh estevez uh i die quite now emilio estevez obviously i know more he's probably the most famous of them now martin sheen's son of course and you really see it as well I always uh, think he, he did in fact have a, have a role as an extra in apocalypse now because uh, he was he was in he was fourteen in the Philippines when it was being shot. Oh, I but, remember that. But, but his yeah. scenes were deleted. So he was one of the oldest actors in here as well. He'd already done Repo Man, yeah, which I'd like uh, to watch. So he was twenty three when this came out. Something like yeah, yeah. And I think he he does to me. He slightly plays against type, or at least he's. I I thought he did do a good job of 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 slightly subverting the jock stereotype, and of all of them, the one that. The monologues at the end, and we get a whole stream of monologues when they're saying in this circle. Yeah. Here's one probably moved me, came the closest to moving me when he's talking about, um, yeah, that how he wishes his knee would just give in and he wouldn't have to. And now there's mm-hmm. not, a, there's no, that's not a shocking moment in the sense that that is what it's like to be in a very highly intensely competitive situation. What one, was, one feels that they would, they would all have some sort of feeling of that nature, but he's the one who has the clear obvious out you know if if i get that kind of injury then this is all over yeah yeah and it's uh it's probably he's got the clearest path to expressing as well but he gets the monologue that that says it even though they've Mm. all got similar problems in their own milieu um and yeah i i thought his was a very good acting performance i mean i thought they were all good i'm not going to say anyone another one instant almost fire of course Yes, of course, yes, yeah. And, and, um, and of course, the, the unforgettable maximum overdrive. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> no matter how you might try. Indeed. Dear me. Um, I've read the short story of that and it's even worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, Stephen Kinky. Um, I think you can survive such criticism though. Um, uh, and then we have, um, well, the, the two remaining are the two sort of outsiders, and frankly, the ones that I identified with more, because mm. that's what they were the closest to what I was like at school. Um, and so we have Ali Sheedy as the the kind of goth. Uh, I think I'll call her goth. She wasn't quite full blown. Again, Pro, she was proto goth. Proto goth is probably the way of putting it. Um, but she was dressed in black and dark and didn't talk. And um, again. She, she of I mean, course had been in war games two years earlier. She she did she did loads actually. Um, Short circuit. Uh, well, never mind that. But God, uh, cool, yeah, I remember that. Poor man's E.T. Um, <laughs> I I I liked Ali Sheedy's performance, um, and I like her, but I felt again a bit like we said earlier. It was a bit unearned that she suddenly started talking and come out coming out of a shell. 
It just didn't feel entirely natural. It just felt like something that happened. Um, yeah, well, I, I think there was, there was all of that to some extent. But, mm. uh... Well, we had that little weird montage of them running through the corridors where um, Bender's character shows his true heroism and sort of sacrifices himself for the rest of them, mm-hmm. um, which was a nice moment. Didn't really <laughs> land for me with the emotional weight that it might have done. But... Um, and, and then we have um, uh, Anthony Michael Hall, who I previously mainly knew from um, Weird Science. Um, another John Hughes film, which I very much enjoy. <laughs> mainly, I remember now, because exactly as you say, one of the bit part characters in that, who doesn't have a lot to do, is uh, Robert Downey Jr., who then turned <laughs> out to be, be quite... Um, uh, but yeah, he, he, did he, had a, he had a small part in Edward Scissorhands, and again, I mean, plenty of films, but very little I've seen. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's, um, he's been, you think he played, The Dead Zone is one of my favourite films, and I think there was a spin-off TV show, and he might have played Johnny Smith in it, maybe, I might be misremembering that, but I think he was in The Dead Zone. Uh, yes, lead, uh, lead role. He was, he was the lead role in that. Um, again, I, I very much liked his performance, he wasn't quite the nerd that I was, I think, and so it didn't quite, Gel with me. I, I don't know whether he actually looked like that naturally, or, or I'm presumably he had some assistance from makeup, as everybody would have. Um, but looking at them as a group, he is the one who, who looks unfinished, uh, which frankly is a look I associate more with sporty people. <laughs> yes, I but, don't know if that's. But it works for him. I think he was one of the youngest in the cast, if that has uh, got something to do with it as well. I could be wrong there, but I think he was like 16, maybe, in this film. He was in 16 Candles as well. Yeah. Um, in fact, he was in a lot of John Hughes films. Um, yeah, it was good. I mean, again, I didn't really... When he comes out with his, um, oh, I had a gun. Oh, I was going to use it to kill him. And it turns out it was a He never gun. says, or at least not in the print I saw, he doesn't say he was going to kill himself. No, no, it just, he, he implies it, and then it turns out it's a flare gun. Um, and you can kill yourself with a flare gun, but it takes competence, which is not, you know. <laughs> not sure he would Rogers have Rogers Gun's that. corner, such as it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's the, that's the, ca- I, again, I feel they all did a very competent job. They were very young, most of them at the time. And, I, they look, I mean, that, as far as my reaction to The Breakfast Club, it's almost the polar opposite of Dance with a Stranger. Dance with a Stranger was on uphill struggle for me. It's 50s Britain, and I just feel depressed just even thinking about mm-hmm. it. 80s America, to me, sad though it is, it's when I grew up, it's where a lot of my culture started hitting me. Sure. It's just a happy place for me. It's a happy, bright, exciting, exotic, it's a place where adventurous things happen. And so I was, I was already with it. It has 80s music, um, which is, I mean, objectively the best music ever produced. <laughs> um, is, uh, is this like the way the golden age of HP Lovecraft is 12? <laughs> um, it could be, it could be. But yeah, I mean, I do remember. Uh, seeing posters for this when it when it was released and having s- some vague idea of what it was about and well I was just never really interested in stories about essentially children teenagers realistic problems 
A, I was much more into science fiction and fantasy anyway, but B, yes. even if it wasn't that, I was more interested in adults who could do stuff rather than children who couldn't. Well, you, um, you've been on record, I think, as saying that you, uh, in one of your many recorded episodes, that you, uh, I think it's when you've been talking about comedy that you don't find comedy about, haha, look at this idiot who can't do this thing because you feel like that sometimes in real life. First class as well, yeah. And I, I think here, it's like, here's a load of awkward teenagers. Oh, I remember being an awkward teenager. I don't necessarily want to revisit that time. Um, there, there's that too. But, but what I'm saying is even at the time, um, hmm. that wasn't the sort of story I want. It, it, it is a truism these days. I'm look, looking at the sales of young adult fiction and so on. Uh, yeah. People want to read stories about people like themselves in adventurous situations. And whether that was me or the times, I don't know, but that wasn't a feeling I had at the time. No, and I mean, you could, I suppose young adult fiction is a whole topic we could go into for a while, isn't it? But um, I, I never remember that transition. I, in a way, exactly as you say, I was trying to explain this to um, my friend who I watched it with. I never really went through a transition in my reading where I thought, oh, there is a gap here. I'm not, I'm, old, I'm too old for children's books. I'm not old enough for adult books. For me, I just, basically, I went from The Hobbit to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And that, that I didn't feel like I needed a, a, a Frodo as a teenager book in the middle. <laughs> to, well, to, to be fair, some of the pressure for this is not coming from the readers at all, but from people who want to buy books for children without yes, necessarily yeah. knowing the children particularly well. Uh, sometimes that's uh, relatives, sometimes that's you know school librarians, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I think so, young adult is a is a is a real marketing genre more than it is. Uh, but nowadays, I guess you can just go into oh, these are books about people like me having adventures. Well, um, there's also the subdivision out of that into I think they're calling it new adult, which oh, is gosh. you know sort of like very late teens, early twenties, uh, no longer having to do the breaking out of your parents' shell thing, yeah, but being out in the world and a bit lost, and, and then having adventures or whatever. I suppose the closest I can remember, I don't know what the marks at the time, was Judy Bloom. I read a few of Judy Bloom's books when I was uh, a kid, which was um, things like sweet. How to Eat Fried Worms and um, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And it was American. I'm, I'm vaguely remembering the series title Sweet Valley High as well. Same sort of idea, maybe? Well, no, Judy Bloom was actually, it was, it was, Sweet Valley High is much more twee, I think. Okay. Judy I'm Bloom not, not was really so. dealing with very much like the Breakfast Club, really. Though it wasn't marketed as, uh, and I remember encountering that in my mum's. My mum was a head teacher in a, my mum's school, and it was really quite. I think in Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. She has an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really quite intense, often from a female perspective, and they're really well written. And maybe they're proto young adult books, but I, I don't remember there needing to be a, a genre for them at the time. Except it would have been hard to find them in the adult shelves. So maybe there is a, yeah. a need for that genre. Um, that that was another thing, of course. Um, by the time that this came along, uh, at least in where I was in the early 80s, there, there were a lot of uh, books being pushed on one that were worthy. And, you know, here is a, yeah. here is a book about a real kid with real problems. V- very much the, 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 the book equivalent of the kitchen sink drama. You know, here, here, here is somebody with a horrible life. I remember we had to read um, The Turbulent Term of Tyke Tyler, which is a very interesting book because it's uh, it doesn't use pronouns, the whole book. And <laughs> you read the whole book assuming Tyke Tyler is a boy. And then in like the last chapter, it's like, come down from there, Tyke, you naughty girl. 
and it's it's just it's you can't get your mind around it and you you scan but that was a really good lesson for me actually it was you scan back through the mm-hmm. book looking for the he because you're absolutely sure in your head that Tyke yeah. is a boy that was a very that should be taught more but see I don't know that's my experience of being put had these books pushed on me that I enjoyed them mm-hmm. Fair <laughs> so enough. I mean that's my problem really I, apart from the Merchant of Venice which I flipping hated um, <laughs> oh and um, apropos of, of last week we were um, oh what's the play oh but, uh, it doesn't matter it will come to me at some point View from the Bridge maybe no different one um no, I shouldn't think about it. She um, the, the, yes, a yes. play that she'd written before. Um, uh, 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 a Taste of Honey. A Taste of Honey, flipping heck. About as much fun as Kez. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Kez. Kez I didn't enjoy, but I kind of appreciated the, the artistry of it. Yeah, again, Jeez, that, that, that was the sort of it. thing that was getting getting pushed at me. Not, to be fair, by my parents. <laughs> No, whereas this felt like a film that wouldn't be pushed at you by your parents. It'd be a film that you were going to see with your mates and it was talking to you on your level. Mm. Um, the the other such. thing is that uh, we were chatting about this a bit before we started. Um, it, we, we had probably fairly different school experiences in, in, in the details, but I think none, neither of them was particularly horrible. Um, no. And neither of them, I think, was anything like the US high school experience. No. I agree, and and maybe high schools have become more American over time. But my it bore very little relation to my school experience. But I'm from British, sort of, as you say, British comprehensive, <laughs> and um, it just didn't didn't have the same. Uh, so, in, I, insofar as it's trying to reach out to you and say you could be one of these people, there are people like this out there, it fails slightly because it's that slight alienation, which obviously you know it's it's. Presumably made mostly for an American audience. Yeah, and well, it, I think that yeah. it's too glamorous for me, and that glamour lends a distance to it. I mean, they're all impossibly good-looking in this very shiny, huge... Well, that, that I just expect from a film, I guess. But... Well, I do, but I, uh, to me... The, the size of the school. Between... I mean, I, I, I went to what was considered a fairly large school, um, and it had about a 1,000 pupils. Yeah. And it didn't, you could just about have got to that level of space in it, but it would have been difficult. Our library was, yeah, I, I, yes, exactly. You could not have danced about on the beams in our library. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like a Victorian prison. Um, I, I think to me, what I mean by the glamour is that kind of sheen of it, the American colourful 80s thing, that was a thing that happened in the movies. It bore no yeah. relation to my real life. Same as with Indiana, you know, Raiders of the Lost Dark and E.T. Yeah, you don't the expect to go out and find Nazis to punch. Exactly. Uh, but here we are. How we've moved <laughs> on, yeah. Here we are. Um, but I feel... Well, the high school, the eighties high school, particularly the American high school, or you know, all the words were different. It was all like sofa more and my grade point average. None of that meant anything to me, and so it lent this distance, which yes, probably meant that it spoke to me less than mm. it would have done if that was a British high school drama. But what did we get if with Malcolm McDowell going bonkers at the end? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we, we will quite possibly come back to this a bit uh, when, when we deal with the Back to the Future series, which I think it's not a spoiler to say will be on our list at some later date. Oh, definitely, yeah. But I think we want to do the, the first, trilogy. Particularly the first one, there, there is a, a significant school element there. Well, again, maybe that, because I saw that, you know, before, and that, again, we don't want to cover ground that we want, but again, that adds to this element of, that was a American high school, but it had this mysterious adventure and science fiction. Yeah, it, 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 it is an alien land. 
Exactly. It was not so, part of my real life. And I, I didn't particularly want to watch a film about my... Yeah, my British experience, I must say. Mm. I don't think... It would have been not glamorous and depressing, and maybe that's cliched to say, but... I, 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 I wonder whether if, if one had been at an American high school, one might have been more affected by the... Well, yeah, I mean, it looks like the sort of place I go to school, only it's all much bigger and prettier and every, everybody looks beautiful and so on. I don't know. That might, well, might have watched, been a problem, but clearly it wasn't for everybody. Uh, well, I watched this film through with my very dear um, American friend, and, and yes, I think for her it did... Um, it, it did resonate it with her in a way that it didn't necessarily... Mm. Um, with me, so, um, so yeah, I, I think that had an had an effect. I d- I did enjoy it. I mean, I just love the I love the eighties. I love the milieu. <laughs> I love the music. I love, but it. Um, I did. I, I, I did get a feeling of I'm waiting for my heartstrings to be plucked, and oh right, the film's over. Yeah, and then yeah. then I thought about it a bit and said, yeah, okay, yeah, here are bits that do work. That's fine, but. Given the reputation it has, I expected to be a, a bit more wowed than I was. I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I think I was a little set up by the kind of staginess of it to be struck by the revelations. And I almost felt like, all oh, right, they're all sitting together. This is the scene where it's all going to come out. And, and in some ways, yeah, I, I was, I, maybe that's my fault for building it up too much in my head. But when the revelations did come out, they felt a little, uh, well acted and well written. To an extent, I do think the writing wasn't what did let it down a little bit. Um, of the it, it's clumsy. I mean, I, you, yeah. you can see the moving machinery. Yeah, yeah, but it was it was just not. Uh, and and particularly shocking. the early scenes, they go out of their way to abandon any sympathy I might have for them. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Which may have been a deliberate ploy. Yeah, there we go. Well, presumably they're, they're all uh, effectively fronting up to each other. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that was right. realist. Well, I, I, I don't know. It felt, and probably for the reasons we just covered, the whole thing felt a bit mythical to me rather than realistic. They were archetypes. They were in this exotic place. Um, to mm. me, exotic. And it, uh, that took away the fact that they were talking about their own personal, fairly small problems. Uh, maybe that left a feeling of underwhelming. Though also, I mean, as as we said before about other films, the revelation that the perfect princess doesn't have a perfect life is no longer a revelation. Yes, I think that is part of the problem, and that the reason that's no longer a revelation is because here's where it here's where it was a revelation, yeah. and then people have copied it. I think I don't know if it was the very first, but probably the most influential to do it, which is probably a good point to talk about. Do we think it's a masterpiece? Well, I certainly think it's influential. Um, yes. I, not I so think... much in the direct imitation as in... The, I, th- I think some of the characters here in particular have just become standard characters. Yes. He, he, I think he, the you you of... assume now that he, even in a fairly superficially written film, somebody's going to be not quite what they appear. Yes. Uh, yeah, it added dimension to these stereotypes that may have existed before, or archetypes probably more than stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, it also treated teenagers as real people with real problems, and I think that was a very, you know, we're still seeing echoes of that, so there's Netflix, there's, um, 
sex education, which is, I would say, strongly influenced by the breakfast. I haven't seen yeah, much of it. Considering but, the sort of stuff that came before this, which was, you know, on the one hand, your, your Porky's type comedies. Yeah. And on the other hand, your, your PBS after school specials, where implausible characters learn an important lesson. <laughs> yes, this, I, I think this has been strongly influential in, in a lot of it. Not least on John Hughes's other work, but on a lot of other, it's almost like, it's become now, I would say the Breakfast Club is, um, what you deviate from when you're doing that. If you want to do something different, this is what you differ from because it is basically the norm now mm. to some extent. Um, and it's been developed and, you know, written with, uh, female casts and with more diverse casts. Um, but it's not really changed dramatically from that. You know, I, you know, this even echoes into things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which was, it was, railing against it to some extent but, but, it's but still... it assumes that ba- that same basic high school yeah. setting with the cliques and all the rest of it which i i don't know i mean i'm sure there are high schools where it's like that but i've also heard plenty of people say well no it just wasn't so yeah yeah but this is that this is now the filmic high school that you differ from so mm. massively influential i think by that standard um well, i yeah, think... c- consider something like the craft which is a few years later i think let me just check when was heather's i was wondering now as well uh, as that, that is a few years later um yeah the craft is 1996 later than i thought oh wow they, they take, yeah okay uh but but that's definitely take taking this this model of a high school uh with it yeah and uh, yeah just about any kind of teen school yeah so strongly uh, heather's is 89 yeah, I had a thing. So that was, but again, Heather's is kind of a dark view of this. I mean, I but but it Heather's, assumes frankly. that you know how this all works. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, is it a masterpiece in its? I mean, I think, I think to have the influence that it did, I I can't argue that it was a masterpiece. I do feel it's a flawed masterpiece, and and the things that led it down, I think, are the things that we talked about. The, the construction of it. I feel like the slightly awkward montages and when they leave the library a bit uncom bit clumsy. I well, feel that the it, adults... it's, it's pushing in in two directions. On, on the one hand, it's trying to say we have all learned something important here. Yeah. And on the other hand, it's trying to say, but we are going back to playing our roles. Yeah. Actually, that was that was. Do quite do, do I really me, think but... they'll be changed by this? You know, East Bender not going to be in juvie in five years and in grown up prison in ten years. As a result of this, yeah, it, it didn't fit. Uh, well, uh, and also the film kind of specifically checked with Molly Ringwald's character, kind of saying, "Well, you know, where um, uh, Anthony Michael Hall's character is trying to say, uh, we're all going to we can call ourselves friends now." And she was pointing out the obvious, like, "You know what? No, next week I'm going to ignore you just the same as I would any <laughs> other week." I thought that was nice that that was explicitly checked that basically. Uh, they touch, they, to me, it felt like it was a very temporary touching of bases. They realise they've all got problems and frankly, they're never going to talk to each other again after this. For the most part. One well, well, would like to think it had changed their lives, but I at least was not convinced. No. But I think, to me, I think maybe that was part of the point of the film. I didn't mind. I don't think that was a failing of the film particularly. Mm. Um, I, but yeah, it felt, Underwhelming, I suppose. Maybe the, its reputation preceded a bit too much, but I was a little underwhelmed by it. Um, On the other hand, it worked pretty darn well. Yeah, I, it, I really it, enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than Dance with a Stranger, which in some ways had 
more crowd. I don't know. Perhaps that's unfair on this one. I, I enjoyed it um, <laughs> for sure. It's not my favourite film. Unlike you, really, I'm a nerd and I'd rather be watching science fiction or something generally. But that's the point of this podcast to watch films that are slightly out of our comfort zone. Yeah, and you know, n- none. Okay, maybe you're edging bull, but mo- mostly <laughs> I have not regretted watching any of these. So you know, I, I'm def- oh, yeah. definitely yeah, I'm learn- very glad learning more it. ways of appreciating film as well. So yeah, but, yeah I- this, this doesn't doesn't do things grossly wrong. No, it doesn't do things as well as one might hope, but in some ways it is prototypical of the thing that would be refined and done better later. And on that basis alone, it, it's difficult because it's here is the clumsy effort that was followed up. Well, I don't know. Is there yeah. a single film that you could say does the whole thing better? Probably not, but lots of elements not... of it were individually done better later. Yeah, there are lots of later, like say anything I saw when I was a little bit older and I just loved it. I mean, John Cusack can do little wrong for me, I must say, but, um, it just, his teen angst is nobody angst like John Cusack as a teen. It's very good. Um, all those there are other films yeah he he, he was the guy who very nearly played bender in this i really now that would have been i think he would have he um but uh, uh, john hughes didn't think he looked threatening enough well i think in a way he's a bit too sympathetic i'm sure he could have done because he has played some pretty um aggressive characters um but in a way yeah i i would like him too much if he was in it mm. so maybe that was the right choice maybe um i did very much enjoy it um yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's it. I, I agree. It's a mass. It fits into my, you know, we've talked about definitions of mass pieces before. I don't think it is a, a pinnacle of craft of film work, but I do think it was groundbreaking and very influential. And by yeah, those it's, standards, it's, it's foundational in that sense. Yeah, rather than, um, at the summit. Um, but yeah. But it works. I, it I think it was a masterpiece and we liked it. There we are. Well, that wraps up 1985. I think. Onwards to 1986. Doom! Doom! All that it it remains for me to say is, Roger, don't don't you forget about me. Who? (laughs) And on that bombshell. We can't can't exit with simple minds, can we? We can't afford it. Never mind. (laughs) All right.